The Biden administration is calling on agencies to transition the federal automobile fleet to zero-emission vehicles. But agencies have a long way to go to meet that goal. The current inventory of plug-in electric vehicles is less than 1% of the overall fleet. And agencies have been slow to purchase more of them. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman joins me with more. Jory, what is the plan here for zero emissions? When do they want this to be in place by? Well, this has been, since the start, a pretty big goal for the for the Biden administration. We saw President Joe Biden in his first month in office sign an executive order outlining this vision as part of a broader environmental policy here, getting the federal fleet to move to this zero emission goal. And we saw more recently that the White House is putting this plan into focus in the form of its 2022 budget request, asking Congress for $600 million for the General Services Administration and 18 other agencies to purchase more of these zero emission vehicles. And meanwhile, the Biden administration is asking lawmakers to approve $5 billion to support a broader national transition to these vehicles and supporting things like electric chargers to make sure it's a more viable thing as people are driving these cars around. And of course, we know then, as you stated, the money they're looking for. What about the results? What are they trying to get done here with electric cars? Well, as part of this executive order, it is part of a broader environmental goal here, and they are looking to reduce emissions and improve public health by cutting air pollution. You know, more significantly, however, agencies would also save a lot of money in the process here. For a little context, the federal fleet is more than 650,000 vehicles. And last year alone, based on data that we saw from the General Services Administration, agencies spent $729 million just to fuel that federal fleet and spent more than a billion dollars on maintenance and repair costs. And so speaking of GSA, we heard from the acting GSA administrator, Katie Kale, at a recent conference of federal fleet managers. And she said that in addition to all the things we've been talking about environmentally, she said this would also make the U.S. a global leader in electric vehicle production and adoption. We're doing this by keeping equity at the center of our work. We want everyone to have access to the benefits and the opportunities that come with electrifying the federal fleet. That includes good paying jobs, improved air quality, and better quality of life. All right. So that's what Katie Kale has to say about it. What are agencies actually doing then as they go about buying their standard, you know, Chevys and Fords and whatever else they buy with motors in them? So at this point, agencies are drafting these agency specific plans to fit into this larger administration agenda. And Kale did urge agencies to work with the GSA fleet program, as well as the public building service as they're drafting those plans so that they do have some some coherence to where they're going to put the chargers and how they're going to buy the vehicles. Meanwhile, we did get an update from White House National Climate Advisor Gina McCarthy. She said that in April, a handful of agencies purchased more than 150 plug-in vehicles in a single week. These are agencies like the Department of Energy, Homeland Security, Veterans Affairs, Interior, and the Marine Corps. Meanwhile, McCarthy said that the administration is on track to triple the number of zero emission vehicles in the federal fleet. And at this Fed fleet conference, she kind of gave a little bit of a pep talk in that regard. All across the country, you are the ones making the decisions on how to best support your workers in your field offices. You are likely sorting through permitting challenges you have never had to experience before. Like the first ever EV charger in your county or your town. And that's tough. 
it has to be a bit daunting. And that's climate advisor Gina McCarthy from Boston, I'm presuming, talking to the fleet owners. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. And what about the hurdles to moving to electric vehicles? I think you alluded to charging stations, for one thing. What else? Like you said at the top, these zero-emission vehicles only make up about 1% of the overall inventory here. And we also heard from Robin Carnahan in this regard. She's President Biden's pick to permanently run GSA. And she recently told the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee that moving to a zero-emission fleet will require agencies to work pretty closely with the industry, people who are making these cars, to address some agency-specific needs things like battery life and, again, making sure that these charging stations are in places where agencies need them. I think the key here is uh, to make sure that there's a close consultation with the industry. There is a limitation now on some of the inventory of vehicles because the missions of some of the agencies have specific vehicle needs and they're not always available in the marketplace right now. So Signaling to the market what those needs are is going to be important so they can do their planning. I guess maybe that was an allusion to, say, law enforcement requirements or military requirements where certain vehicles, there is no such thing as an electric vehicle that can do what they need. So what agencies, Jory, do you think have the biggest hurdles to this electric fleet idea? Well, like you just said, certainly federal law enforcement and defense have unique needs and they work in rugged environments where perhaps there's not going to be a robust infrastructure to charge those vehicles. But, you know, what's interesting here is the Postal Service is also a pretty big stuck gear in all of this. Um, They the Postal Service makes up more than a third of the overall federal fleet, and the Postal Service is actually moving ahead with its next-generation delivery fleet. They've awarded the contract already to Oshkosh Defense, and they passed up some vendors in its shortlist that were going to build an all-electric fleet. This is going to be a mix, and as far as what that mix is going to be, that's still not quite 100%. Postmaster General Louis DeJoy has told lawmakers that about 10% of the new fleet would be these electric vehicles. And then he later revised that to say that 10% is a floor and that it's still to be determined what the mix is going to be between electric and internal combustion engines. In reaction to that, House lawmakers have introduced a bill that would give the Postal Service $6 billion in order to purchase more of these electric vehicles, make sure that that electric vehicles make up 75% of its overall new fleet. But meanwhile, DeJoy is pretty skeptical about these electric vehicles. He's said in a letter to House lawmakers that, you know, close to 13,000 routes across the country would not be suitable for these kinds of vehicles. Think of these rural routes where letter carriers have to travel an extraordinarily long distance to deliver all of their mail. Yeah, they can get the mail there, but they can't get the trucks back if they die somewhere out and there's no charger for 50 miles. And so $6 billion. And has anyone calculated, Jory, you mentioned early on that the government spent last year something like just under $800 million on fuel. Does anyone know what the electric tab will be, the electricity bill, should all those cars be converted to plug in overnight? You know, that's a little more nebulous, but certainly that comes with a cost as well. You know, electricity is not free and it comes from somewhere. And so that is not going to be a zeroed out figure, certainly, but it would be some cost that we don't quite know just yet. Yeah, that's a good question. I wonder if anyone knows that cost. And have they calculated the cost of the infrastructure needed? Because you have to have charging stations and those are not cheap and you need a lot of them. 
I mean, every postal office. I mean, I'm looking at the one near where I live. There's 50 trucks sometimes parked there, delivery vans. Do you charge them all at once? Then you need 50 charging stations in just one local post office. So that's another figure we haven't really heard. We know what gasoline costs, but I haven't heard the figures of what an electric vehicle total cost of ownership and life cycle cost would be. And so I guess those figures haven't really been revealed if anyone does know them, correct? Seems to be like a couple of big open questions you've outlined there. All right. Well, we know you'll be on it as soon as those numbers come out. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black. Literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. 
And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a Secretary of Commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. 
And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career. Not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet, or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Whether in person or remote, open communication with your doctor is key to managing any condition, including heart failure. How have you been feeling? Um, I'm okay. Both are great options to continue having open conversations with your doctor about how you're feeling. I've had less energy. And when you speak openly with your doctor, they're better equipped to help. Visit heartfailuretalks.com to learn more. A financial plan isn't just about money. It's about what matters most to you, like protecting your family, supporting your community, and building a legacy for future generations. At Northwestern Mutual, we start with a conversation about the life you want to live now and years from now. Whether you're paying down debt, saving for college, or planning for retirement, we have an eye on your bigger picture. Get access to our financial expertise at harlem.nm.com. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, headquartered in Milwaukee, Wisconsin.